I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. That's going to be where we land. And uh, as we begin, I want to ask a question. Have you ever been somewhere where, where you felt unprepared for the situation? Maybe you're in here shivering a little bit, thinking you're unprepared for the weather inside or out today. And uh, some of the students coming across from the firehouse this morning were a little cold as they walked over. And, you know, sometimes situations in life are like that. You, you try to prepare for it, but it doesn't work out like you anticipated. When I was a child uh, in early years in elementary, I went to a small Christian school where I was one of two or three kids in my class, depending on the year. That's a small school. And uh, so when uh, the, those early uh, years were over, my parents prepared me or attempted to prepare me to go to the big public school. There were 2,000 kids in the local school, and I was getting thrust into that. And so they took me out. They bought me the clothes I needed, the notebooks, the pens, and, you know, sat me down and talked to me a little bit about it. And then a couple of days before the classes actually started, I got to go and, uh, you know, walk and, and find my locker in the school. And this is where your homeroom's going to be. And, and so I wouldn't feel completely unprepared for the situation once the, the day came. But the day came. And so I had to get on the bus for the first time. I'd never been on a bus before. And that was a new experience. And then I went and we stood in this massive congregation of students outside the school. They didn't open the, the doors for us to go inside until about five minutes before we were supposed to be in our homerooms. And so we had to go straight to our lockers. And it's just a sea of people going through the hall. And I was almost immediately overwhelmed. Uh, I, I, you know, and it's not, it wasn't my parents' fault. There's just no way they could prepare me for what it was I was going to face. And, and so I quickly had to chuck everything I had known about school and how it operates to learn. Have you ever tried to open those school lockers? I mean, isn't that one of the most difficult challenges in all of life? That's why they put it in school, by the way. If you can figure that out, students, you're well on your way to succeeding in life. Uh, but it was, it was, and sometimes we, we feel like, and I can almost use that as a metaphor for a, a lot of the way we look at the culture we're in uh, today. For those of us who remember the 80s and the 90s and even earlier decades than that can seem like we've been rapidly thrust into a situation that looks completely different than anything that we have experienced thus far change happens quick. Pastor Graham asked me in the first service, he was standing in the front, he was giving the announcements, he said, how long have you been here, Jason? And I said, six years. And uh, he said, um, you look a little grayer. And I said, I still have some catching up to do. So he, he thought, that's now, Pastor Graham uh, is an inspiration to me in a lot of ways. He's seen a lot of change over the years within the culture, within the church. And so I try to stick close to people who have that perspective. But last week, Pastor Eric put a chart up on the screens and it showed, you know, uh, the kind of, well, it was a th three different 
I guess you could call it phases or epochs or, or whatever you want to call it, uh, where, you know, the church was, was the, the, the away team, and then it was the home team, and now it's the away team again. He used Francis Schaeffer's phrase, post-Christian era. And it is into that post-Christian era that I want to speak this morning from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book that was entitled, How Should We Then Live? And that's kind of how I want us to think about this message. Based on what you heard last week, if you were here, how should we respond to the times that we find ourselves in? As Christians have ever done, we turn to the scriptures. We go forward by going back, urgently asking God to show us the way for ourselves personally, for our families, uh, for our institutions, the church itself. Here's the good news. Now, hopefully this message is full of good news for you, but here's one right from the start, is that I believe that the scriptures now, in the time that we live in, is more relevant than it has been in a long time. Well, the word of God is always relevant. Yes, it is always relevant. But think about this. Who were the, the New Testament letters and the Gospels written to? Were they written to the moral majority? Were they written to the, uh, the, the current power holders of the day? No, they were written to, to little outposts of light in the vast darkness of the Roman Empire who were experiencing persecution and and they were, they were the odd ones out in the culture. They were not the ones who had any sense of, you know, we're, we're the ones in charge here. We're the ones that are setting the course of the culture. And so it, it's more relevant today because we are actually living in days where we can say with uh, the New Testament readers uh, from the original uh, century, yeah, I relate to that. I really, we are that culture now. We are the ones kind of uh, on the away team. And so, uh, the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, authors wrote their letters to persecuted minorities. And Ephesians 5, verses 15 and following, I want us to see several things, starting with verse 15 that kind of acts as a banner uh, to to get our attention focused in the right direction. And then after that, I want to give us three characteristics of Christians who live wisely in evil days. So first of all, verse 15, it says this, look carefully or pay close attention then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And when Paul uses the term walk, he uses it frequently. He uses it in Colossians and Galatians as well. He's, uh, he's talking about the, the manner in which we live or the, the way we conduct ourselves. And so we could uh, paraphrase this as to, to say, pay careful attention to the way you're living your life. Be reflective. That's not easy in the world in which we live. I mean, some of you might be actually sitting here right now fighting off the urge to pick up your cell phone and do something other than listen to the message. 
And in every moment of the day, it's like something in our pocket that's trying to grab our attention. And so in the moments where people used to have free margin to be reflective, all of that time is being sucked away from us by gadgets. And our ability to do that is, is it's like the... The Holy, which speaks, the Holy Spirit speaks to us in that still small voice is getting drowned out by all the noise of culture. I have to believe that that's intentional by our enemy and was something that we need to be careful about. And so right from the beginning, we could say that Christians who live wisely in evil days are people that will actually take stock of the moment that they're in, that they will... Uh, be uh, more careful to think about how they're doing, how the relationship with God is going. Am I walking in the right direction? Is this what God would have me to do? And so as we get started, we want to lay that groundwork. First of all, we want to get into a kind of a reflective pattern here. And so then let's get to these, these three characteristics of somebody who lives wisely in evil days. First of all, in verse 16, we see this, that the wise Christian carefully considers the use of his or her time. Verse 16 says, making the best use of time. And uh, uh, older translations would say, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a budget? Yes, I mean that kind of a budget, a financial budget. Uh, I spent a number of years not having a budget and uh, I spent some years recovering from not having a budget. You may be able to relate to that. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I budget. And by that you mean that you have a checkbook and you actually go in and you can see where, okay, I said, and I'm not talking about budgeting in that kind of register of things kind of sense. I'm talking about a budget where you actually sit down and say, okay, what do I value? What are my priorities? And here's my money. Am I going to get my money to work for me towards those things? That is budgeting on another le- much more effective level, and I've, I'm a big advocate of that, but it tells us something about ourselves. Your budget will. What you spend your money on tells a lot about what you value. The same can be said of time, our to-do lists. And our calendars are the tools that we use to manage our time. And if we pulled out yours now, maybe on your phone, don't do it now, uh, or, you know, or your iPad or whatever it is, your paper calendar, and we looked at it, what would it tell us about your priorities? Would, it, would we be able to say by looking at it that, that you carefully consider the use of your time in the evil days in which we live. What should be high on a Christian's priority list? Oh, there's the, you know, the obvious ones, right? Going to church and, and, and spending time reading God's word, etc. But uh, the text tells us here in verse 17, look at it. It says, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. One of the highest priorities in the Christian life should be uh, using our time wisely to understand God's will. 
Now, we are modern people, and we think about phrases in modern ways. And one of the phrases we have changed from the earlier understandings is this concept of the will of God. You know, I work with teenagers and young college students all the time, and this is a question I get all the time. How do I know God's will for my life? And, you know, what, what do they mean when they ask that question? They're asking me, how can I determine what God's specific will is for my life as an individual? You know, the peop older peop people from previous eras didn't ask that question when they were considering God's. Today, it's like, you know, I'd like the writing on the wall be specific for me personally. And, and it's, not, I'm not, it's not wrong to ask that question necessarily, but its emphasis is in the wrong place. Because when the, the writers of the New Testament talk about the Lord's will and coming to understand it, it's more of a God-focused thing than a me-focused thing. Because when we ask that question, what is God's will for my life? It's very personal-centric. It's, it's, it's a focus inward. It's a focus um, about your little, you know, radius around you. But what the authors of the New Testament were more concerned with was the big picture. What is God doing in the world? What is his plan for the ages? What is he about? Jesus is building his church. He's bringing all things to a culmination and we are here in this moment, and we need to jump in that stream and let God's will for the ages guide our life. And so it's a much more big picture kind of concept. And, and, uh, and uh, Peter O'Brien, he wrote it this way. I, I like the way he said it. The contemporary preoccupation with personal guidance is wrongly directed if it's not understood, first of all, within the framework of God's gracious saving purposes for his world. Personalized concerns about guidance may, in fact, be evidence of folly, which stands in contrast and needs to be corrected by a true understanding of the Lord's will. So how do we do this? How do we understand that big picture of what God is doing in the world and how he's directing things and how it relates to us. Well, three, three ways I've found effective are, in no particular order of importance, prayer and, and Bible reading. We cannot get away from this in our Christian life. Um, if you come to church each Sunday morning thinking, oh, I need the preacher to tell me something to get my life on track. I need to find a way to grow in my faith. I, I hope the preacher tells me something that you already know the most essential thing you need to do to get your life moving in the right direction closer to God. It's prayer and Bible reading. But we're just never satisfied with the simplicity of that answer. It's like, oh, you know, yeah, I know, I know it's all about prayer and Bible reading and we got to do that. But tell me something else. No, I'm not going to. 
That's what, it's ab- that's what it's about. And if you're here this morning and you do not have in your life a personal time or a relationship with God's word outside of these four walls, then you are not doing what the scripture says to best use your time. It says also, well, I, I've also found it helpful to, to read good books, listening to messages and, and podcasts. Some of you are like, what's a podcast? Well, pod, I, I'm going to put a plug in for one of the best podcasts out there, all right? It's called The World and Everything in It. It's put out by World Magazine, and it is a news podcast that is so solid and well done. I, I listen to it every day if I can. And it, it helps put world events in perspective, biblically speaking. Excellent journalism, very interesting. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. That kind of stuff, I believe, is also how we can redeem the time. And then, and so even when I'm in the car, um, and listening to music is good, but having things to enter our minds to help us focus ourselves on the right kinds of things and have the right perspective is important. And then having intentional conversations with wise people. That'd be the third thing I would say. Intentional. Hey, you know, can I talk to you about something? There's something that's been eating at me. And I'd really like to, you seem like a person that might have some good perspective on it. And going and having those conversations is also very, very good. But here's the rub. All of those take time. I mean, if, if you're here this morning and you're feeling stretched thin time-wise, you're not alone. That's the American way. In fact, if we have uh, bragging rights in the area of being busy, we feel like we're, we're one of the best people in the room. But when we think about uh, the, the to-do lists and our calendars, sometimes it's overwhelming. It's the It's the work, and it's the driving, and the grocery shopping, and taking the dog to the vet, and and, uh, doing the homework, and doing all of these things that weren't even on your calendar in the the first place, going to 18 different sporting events as a parent in the same week. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. uh, there are a lot of things that get put on our calendars that we really can't get around. And that's, and I'm not here to say anything bad about anything uh, in particular, but I, I believe that there are two ways that we can make the best use of our time despite our busyness. And the first of those is to look to the margins. Um, you know, sometimes we use this illustration of a glass jar and, you know, you've got to put your big priority rocks in first and then you fill, the, fill in the cracks with the sand. Well, don't just count the sand. You know, there are big priorities. You've got to go to work. You've got to, you know, take the kids to school. You've got to, whatever, all those things, yes, you've got to put those rocks in. But we tend to look at our schedules and say, I don't have any time for anything else, but... Isn't it true that when we get 15 minutes here or 15 minutes there, out comes the phone and it's scrolling through Facebook time? What if we started to use that time for more productive purposes? Using 
the sand and the margins to, to do that. Uh, as teenagers, uh, as far as teenagers go, it's the video games and the YouTube uh, that can cause us to not use the best use of our time. There's nothing wrong with YouTube or, or video games uh, in and of themselves, but if they are the, the reason why we're not redeeming the time, then they've become a problem. And then secondly, avoid the secular versus sacred trap. Do you know what I mean by that? It's this idea that there are parts of our lives, like compartments, compartments of our lives that are just, you know, not spiritual parts of our lives. There's this, like, this work. I go to work. That's not a part of my spiritual life. You know, I play soccer. That's not a part of my spiritual life. I, it, I have this hobby, or I do these things, or, you know, I'm cleaning the house, and it, it's if we start to look at all of life as sacred, and all of it can be redeemed, all of it can be used wisely, all of our time, not just those little sandy margins, but everything can be used for God's glory, and even as an act of worship. The second thing that Christians who walk wisely in evil days do, on top of carefully considering the use of our time, it's found in verse 18. Now take a look at that verse for a minute. Read it to yourself. And then I'll tell you the principle. And we'll see if what I tell you is what you anticipated. All right, here's the principle. Christians who walk wisely in evil days refuse to give up self-control. Is that what you thought I was going to say? I'm going to guess that it was something more like Christians who walk wisely don't drink too much or don't drink at all. Um, now, is this an important text in the scriptures about the Christian attitude and response to the concept of drinking alcohol? Yes, it is. Uh, but have you ever read this verse and wondered why it seems so out of, out of place? It's like one of these things does not belong here, and it's this verse. Why is it here? Why is it like that? Well, uh, what this is, if, if you look carefully at it, is, is it's, not, it's not the principle itself. It's an example of the principle. It's, the principle itself is self-control. It's a mark of maturity. Whenever we see it in young people, we say things like, she's uh, mature beyond her years, or uh, he's going places, or hire him now, you know, that kind of thing. We, we think when we see somebody that has self-control in their life, but Paul uses that in contrast to what he considers its opposite in the next phrase. And in the ESV, the English Standard Version, which I've been reading from this morning, it has translated it debauchery. I actually think that's an unfortunate choice of language because debauchery is pretty narrowly defined as like orgies and wild sexuality, unrestrained. And the Greek word here does not actually def uh, narrow itself to that confined interpretation. Rather, it means uh, wild and undisciplined living. Undisciplined living. Today, the accepted 
idea related to self-control is, I, I'm speaking out in the culture, is that self-discipline, self-control is for the work week. And uh, once 5 o'clock on Friday hits, then we can finally let loose and just go do whatever we want. And then it's like, uh, and the wild and unrestrained living begins. Now, people that have families and things like that often uh, don't feel that same uh, freedom. But I think especially for young people in the world in which we live, that is the case. But, and drinking does factor into all of this. It lowers our inhibitions. It gives people the illusion of being courageous. And there are a lot of things that we could point to. Isn't it interesting that in TV commercials for beer, that they don't show you the man sitting in the semi-darkness and the wife beater and just passed out in this armchair with beer cans all around in complete loneliness and depression. That wouldn't sell anything. But that's where it leads. And so we think that um, what the world offers us often is, is better, and it's not. And the point isn't here to preach a message on alcohol consumption, but it's clear from Scripture that if we are going to live wise in evil days, we're going to need to be self-controlled. We're going to need to be disciplined. We're going to need to be mentally sharp. This week there was a, an article in the Washington Post about Tom Brady, the football quarterback of the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And some of you are very angry that I would even mention his name because uh, he's a polarizing figure. But regardless of what you think of him, um, we're both we have two things in common. We're both the same age and we're both handsome. So uh, that's, that's where the similarities end. If I was hit by a 300-pound defensive lineman, I think that would be the end for me. But he just pops right back up at 44 years of age. And people are astonished by this. Everybody wants to know, what is his secret? How is it that he can maintain such peak performance so late in, in his career, which uh, is well beyond the time that everybody else is hanging up their football cleats. And uh, the, uh, the title of the article was, Why You Will Never Be Tom Brady. And th the article is all about his self-discipline and his, his self-control. The things he eats, the things he won't, the, 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 the regiments that he puts himself through. It says that he started training for his, for his 30s when he was in his 20s. And started training for his 40s when he was in his 30s. And now he's reaping these words. It was, it was really an article about delayed gratification. Something that Americans are notoriously bad at. And Tom Brady beats the socks off of all of us in that regard. Now, you know, football doesn't matter. But we, where do we see this? We see this, think of Daniel and his three friends. When they were presented with the opportunities to live indulgently, to live this kind of hedonistic lifestyle in Babylon. And they said, no, no, no. We're going to maintain our self-imposed, strict disciplinary diet 
and we're, you, you tell after a short period of time which of us is in better shape. And so the scriptures teach this principle. Tom Brady's just unwittingly doing what the Bible would, would have us do and maintaining. So now, now, that doesn't mean uh, that we, we need to, to do everything that Tom Brady does. Obviously, that is not at all what we're talking about here. But he's an example of somebody who puts a biblical principle to work and sees results, even though he doesn't know it's a biblical principle. So as Christians living in evil days, are we living self-controlled? Or are we more indulgent than we'd like to admit? Something for you to ponder. The third characteristic of Christians who walk wisely in evil days is that they are filled with the Spirit, not filled with spirits. That's a different thing altogether. In fact, I've, <laughs> I've actually heard of people trying to justify the, uh, the excessive consumption of hard liquor using the, these, two, these verses. They'll say, see, Scripture says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with spirits. So they, they go down that road. Like, that's not what we're talking about here at all. But what, what we are talking about is, is wise living. Instead of filling ourselves with that which makes us lose self-control, we are instead instructed to allow the Spirit to fill us. What does that look like? Well, most older versions of the Bible translate the preposition here to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Almost as if we were to like peel off the top and just take a bunch of Holy Spirit and just dump it inside of us and then put the lid back on and we're filled all the way to the top with the actual Holy Spirit. But that's not what it is referring to. And none of the passages on filling in the New Testament really mean that. Some of the more modern translations, I think, have it more accurately stated for us, like the contemporary English version, Christian Standard Bible, they translate the preposition by. Now reread it, and you will see that it says, but be filled by the Spirit. That's more clear. And it avoids that mistake of uh, 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 us thinking that it's really a passive exercise. And, and it's not. It's very active. Because when we think of the, the transforming work that the Spirit does in our lives as we go through our days as Christians, that there is a, there's an aspect of human responsibility and Holy Spirit enablement. And when we allow the Spirit of God to transform us, if we look at verses like uh, chapter 123, chapter 3, verse 19, chapter 4, verse 13, it tells us that we are to be filled to the measure of the fullness of Christ. And, and it's the Spirit that helps accomplish all of that in our lives. And, and, and it's not about our human effort. It's about surrendering ourselves more and more. More and more territory in our lives is, is no longer off limits to God. It is all of us to receive all of Him. 
any man who's in, in Christ or any woman who's in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so when we talk about filling in the Spirit, filling us, we're talking about becoming more like Jesus. And so those who walk wisely in evil days are looking to Jesus and, the, and asking for the Spirit to give us the mind of Christ, to help us walk in His footsteps and have uh, a better understanding of where He's leading us. Now, what will that look like in our lives when, when it's taking place? Well, that's what the rest of the passage is, is about, and we'll cover that quickly as we close. It says in verses 18 through 21, a few maybe surprising things. It says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So evidence of the Holy Spirit filling is going to be a little bit different, okay, a whole lot different, than the evidence for people being intoxicated. You know, they, they, we, we can tell when somebody's intoxicated. They talk different. They say different things. They, you know, they... they they look ridiculous, quite honestly, to those of us who are sober in, in the situation. The Christian should be noticeable for a very different reason. And if we were to do, do these things, we will be more noticeable for the right reasons. Evidence of this filling will look like addressing each other with various kinds of Christian music. Does that sound strange to you? Uh, and I don't mean singing to each other in private and conversation. That'd be kind of weird. Don't you think that'd be a little weird? I, th I just imagine somebody getting on the tank bus and turning to the person sitting next to them and just start singing to them some Christian song or something. Say, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what the Bible says. I don't think that's, it says addressing. That I think the texts of the songs that we sing do not get enough attention. Uh, a lot of the... And I'm not going to rag on any particular style of music, but uh, there have been eras in the Christian experience when the, the message and the words of the script the songs uh, were richer and, and more meaningful than they, than they maybe are today. And so I think that it's important that we preserve those excellent texts of Scripture. Now, why, why music? And why should we be doing with this with each other? I, I think technology is wonderful. I talk about I'm not ragging on s smartphones or technology use. I'm preaching from an iPad. I have a phone with Spotify on it. And I know other people that do as well. And on Friday, somebody texted me a song. So here, listen to this. Um... And, uh, you know, we can uplift each other through music. If you know somebody's down, do you know a song that could lift their spirits? Let them know. Send them, send them a YouTube link or whatever. I do that with my parents because they don't have Spotify. And, and encourage each other with music. There's so much good Christian music out there today 
Um, when I was in high school, it was like if you didn't listen to Petra or Newsboys, that you really didn't have any options. Uh, uh, you know, oh, unless you were into the Gaithers or something, which some of you are, and uh, even still. But today's teenagers have so many options, and, and so we all do. And why is music so helpful to us? For, for several reasons, because it's poetic, it's easy to remember, when we can... And when we can memorize well, when Amy and I were in New Jersey, we were part of a homeschool collection called Classical Conversations. And in Classical Conversations, they take this idea of teaching through music very seriously. There's, there's a, a timeline of world events that they put completely to music and put it on a CD. And our kids memorized, well, our older kids memorized that timeline and they'd like wow people that would come to our house or or you know Amy Amy got a, a, a lot of mileage out of that and encouraged a lot of people to join because they're like wow I mean look what my kid could learn and it was music that provided the vehicle to rem to, rem to memory and so uh, the text of scripture that the, the Psalms that have entered into music. We can memorize the scripture through tunes. It's very, very helpful. And so I want to recommend that to you because it's recommended to us in the text here this morning. And then secondly, it says that we are to be uh, showing evidence of spirit filling by worshiping with the heart. Not robotic. Not just out of duty, not disinterested, not cold. Some of us are distracted a lot in our worship. We come in late. We rush in, and I get it. Life is hard getting everybody from different corners of the building and getting everywhere and getting in here. But when we are unprepared inside to worship with our voices, then we're missing something. And whatever you can do to prepare yourself for worship in these experiences here, it's not just a part of the service that we have to endure to get to the preaching or get out of, uh, out of the building. If somebody were to take a snapshot of you during worship in church on Sunday morning when you're sitting or standing, and then um, send it to you with a caption underneath, what would that caption say? Do people fake heartfelt worship through their actions, you know, raising their hands, dancing the aisles, things like Yes, they do. Uh, and sometimes we tend to dismiss the idea of body language in worship because we don't want to be like those people. That stoic uh, self-righteousness that tends to permeate conservative churches is something I think we need to repent of. And get our hearts into it. If it's in your heart, it'll show up on your face. And it, I'm not trying to attack anyone here. I'm just telling you what the scriptures is saying. If, if you're making melody to the Lord with your heart 
it's going to impact these things. And then finally, it says giving thanks. I love Thanksgiving time. It's my favorite holiday of the year. One of my favorite, Chris, uh, not Christmas, but Thanksgiving traditions is something that my parents passed down to me. And I think I've mentioned it here before. But we sit in a circle and we have a, a bowl of unpopped popcorn kernels. And we pass it around the circle. And each person who gets the bowl takes out five or six, passes it to the next person. And then the second time around, we put a kernel back into the bowl. And as we do that, we say something we're thankful for. And that is so powerful. The attitude of gratitude in our hearts to the Lord is such a buoying, uplifting practice, discipline even. And I, I can't recommend it to you enough. It's about perspective, isn't it? It's about looking at the world and what's going on through the prism of God's victory and God's grace and goodness. It's about optimism. It's about using the past to motivate us to press forward. Think about the advantage the enemy has in evil days in the lives of people who are not grateful. And so Paul throws these phrases into the text and says, hey, we need to be thankful people because when we're thankful, we close a door that Satan wants to keep open, that door where he can smuggle in anxiety and worry and, and doubt and complaining and all of these things that can lead to depression and so many other things. And so, there is a fourth thing in this text, but preachers only preach in threes. And uh, I don't have any more time to deal with it because the topic of submission uh, spills over into chapter 6, and that's another thing we don't do. We don't, don't cross chapter divisions in the sermons, uh, even though the chapter divisions were never in the original text. Uh, so um, I'm not. I'm, we'll save that. If I ever get to preach again, maybe we'll cover some of that next time. But just by way of review, can I take us back and say that if we learn to reflect on our lives and walk carefully. God will show us areas in which we need improvement. Maybe in the areas of the way we use our time. Maybe in our pursuit of God's will. Maybe in areas related to self-control and self-discipline. One final thought on that self-discipline thing. Uh, I read recently that there was a study done on a, a group of individuals who were very lethargic and had no motivation and they just kind of loafed around all the time. 
I don't know how they found these people. <laughs> well, they do a survey and said, if you are one of these people, come here and we'll do this. Um, nobody would ever admit to it, but they found these individuals who did that, and then they, dis they, they, they gave them one task. They wanted to, to get them in the habit of jogging. So they told them, okay, for this amount of time, each day, for six weeks, we're going we're gonna to have you jog. And then at the end of it, they brought, they, they monitored them through the whole process, but they, they, they discovered something very profound. Nearly 80% of the people that did the jogging thing, all of them, you know, 80% of those that participated, they had developed significant self-discipline across the board. And yes, I'm sure all the people that love to exercise are like, preach it, preach it. Um, and some of you are like, well, yeah. But I, I just want to, the, the point of that is that sometimes gaining a little self-discipline in one area, maybe it's food, maybe it's time, maybe it's something else, can spur you on to, and it's like a rock in the pond. And let that be encouraging to you if you're looking at your very messy and undisciplined life. And so, yes, maybe that's something that you need to take a look at. And then this final area of being, of allowing the Spirit to fill us with the fullness of Christ. It's going to show up in the way you talk to your neighbors and your friends. It's going to show up in so many areas. In thanksgiving and even the way we worship together. And together we will be living in evil days in a different kind of way, a more victorious way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It raises the bar. And Lord, I, I've tried to be practical this morning but I know there are there's situations out there that are hard and, and maybe the practicality of this has not really helped in the specific area of need. And Lord, but you, you know what those needs are. And I pray that you would supply. Lord, I pray that you would fill us, that the Spirit would have free reign in, in our lives where there wouldn't be any areas that we have blocked off and said, no, no, this is my area. If we're going to be filled up, we've got to be emptied first. Not, not, not of mental thinking. and not, we, we want to be filled and so it pushes out everything that's negative and everything that's wrong so that we can be models to the world of, of what Jesus is like. I need a lot of work in this area, and I pray that you would help me pray that you would help our families. I pray that you would help our leadership. I pray that you would help our children. Lord, it's good to be in your house. And as we leave, let us go out singing with gladness songs and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody 
and our hearts to God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.